This podcast is brought to you by SaaStock 2016, Europe's premier B2B SaaS conference, targeting early to growth stage SaaS founders and a global VC community on the 22nd of September at the RDS in Dublin. Early birds tickets are available now at www.sastock.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-O-C-K.com. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm your host, Alex Suma, and uh, tonight I have a, a great guest on the show, and we're, we're going to talk about something different. Um, you know, uh, we usually talk about sales and marketing and growth tactics, um, uh, but today it, it, it's something different. Um, you know, my guest, he's an entrepreneur and an angel investor who co-founded a company called The Astonishing Tribe. Um, that was acquired by BlackBerry for, I, I think, something like uh, you know 180 million. I'm not sure whether that was euros or dollars, but I'm, I'm sure he, he may be able to confirm that. Um, and uh, he, he also, uh, you know, not content with that, you know, founded a, a SaaS sales tool for CRM in, in 2012 called Brisk, uh, but recently made the tough decision to to shut Brisk down um, over the summer. Um, welcome to the show, uh, Hampus uh, Jacobson. Um, it's good to have you here. Thank you very much, Alex. Yeah, no, it's a, uh, uh, say, pleasure. And so, you know, usually we, we kind of focus on, you know, all the, the growth stories, of course, you, you know, the founders and, you, you know, uh, the, the people sort of listening to this show, you know, want to know how to grow their SaaS business. But it's, uh, I think as, as we're reading a lot, you know, there, there are so many SaaS businesses out there, you know, and a lot of them are finding it really tough. Um, so, so what I want to, you know, cover with you today is a little bit about this, um, you know, the story, you know, or the journey that you had at Brisk and, you know, coming to that, uh, I, I guess, kind of tough decision to, to, to shut it down. Yeah, and I think absolutely, I think that I think also, kind of, I have this belief that we very seldomly learn when everything is going all right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, we, when we learn, uh, like, when we fall. Um, and I think that, uh, I mean, I, I'm invested in, uh, yeah, a bit over 50, 50 something companies right now. And some of them have been immensely successful. And when I sit down with them and like, you know, have a chat and like do mentoring. And sometimes we get into the subject of like, oh, well, by the way, well, why did, why did we figure this out? And, uh, sometimes we just realize we don't know. Like we just happened to hit bullseye and something and then just span. And then we just threw more money at that thing or like more, more power. And, uh, yeah. But then the thing we always started discussing is like, oh, by the way, why didn't this thing go right? And then we realized how many things we learned there. Like, oh, I remember like we deployed into that. We had no clue of unit economics or uh, like we didn't have had no clue. We thought that marketing would lower our, our, our CAC cost. It didn't or like all of those things where like you had a bet and it didn't work out. For, it feels like when the, you learn to bike by falling off the bike. You don't learn to bike by just like, you know, enjoying the landscape somehow very true very true and, and so let, let's start at the beginning of the journey of, of brisk so obviously you've had a, a you know huge uh, hugely successful uh, exit um you know with the astonishing tribe so you know why did you start brisk in 2012 um you know what compelled you to do it um i mean i'm, I'm driven by learning so i i everything i do like from i wake up to not going to bed in the evening is because i enjoy learning and i think that the um there are multiple ways we can learn. Like you can study something, you can uh, get different impressions, and then you can get a lot of calluses and be, be part of something in the trenches. And I think that uh, when I built uh, TAT, the Astonishing Tribe, um, I mean, we built that completely on our own. We had no venture capital. We were kids. Um, growing that company, we, we 
honestly, we, we learned a lot of things that we could have learned so much faster by having venture capital or angel investors or anything because like it was very much on our own. Um, so then when I joined BlackBerry, uh, I ran M&A for BlackBerry for EMEA and it really felt like the world opened and there were a lot of these very interesting high-level discussions. And I started angel investing and I found all of these interesting things happening when you get this very global perspective. But I think one of the very big, I, I think a question I would you, I would challenge anybody who presents themselves as an angel investor is, uh, are they kind of an armchair angel investor or they are actually out there? Because it's so easy to just say, I'm an angel investor, which means I don't really do anything, but sometimes once every third year I give somebody 20K dollars um, and I'm just sitting sitting and waiting uh, to, to retire completely. And I think that at, at, uh, at BlackBerry, it wasn't that case, but I was starting to feel like if I was going to go into learning again uh, heavily, um, being an armchair investor was not the thing. And I felt that um, uh, it was like, um, it felt like it was diminishing returns at BlackBerry. Like it felt like I had learned a lot of things. It was very, very exciting. And then when the CEO was pushed out, I really felt my role changed very, I mean, BlackBerry stopped acquiring. And I really felt I thought of doing another thing. So then I was thinking what to do next. And then I thought, Honestly, one of the most irritating things about TAT, my first company, was that uh, this might not sound like an irritating thing, but that was the deal size was uh, around five million dollars uh, on average. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that you know that sounds like a nice average contract value to have. Um, or, or uh, but the problem is that those deals take eighteen months or took eighteen months to sign, mm -hmm. and it required me to know the name of the spouse and the dog of the person I was going to meet. I knew every team member, I knew their strategy. I said, often actually I knew their strategy better than they did. I knew their suppliers, I knew what hardware vendors they had, I knew everything about them. Because I'm, I mean, you're gonna sign a huge deal, you need to honestly predict their future and, and help them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that frustrated me was when I was, I've done quite a lot of angel investment back then in 2012, my headache was that a lot of them were asking questions about sales and marketing um, and, and raising money from VCs. And I had neither, I had experience from none of those. Um, like I had experience of sales and marketing, but my sales and marketing was like, you know, mammoth sales and mammoth marketing. Um, and, you know, even like pre-Facebook, but YouTube marketing in a sense. And, um, and uh, I never had any venture capital or any external capital. So for me, I really felt like I'm a pretty shit advisor here. And I was thinking about what bugged me was partly I was a shit advisor, partly because I had no clue actually how to do modern sales. So I was really feeling, oh, I'd love to know more about this. So the premise of the company was really, let's start a company which um, is a SaaS company, but then you know works in that field. And we were starting to think about what actually was interesting and like how to figure out stuff. Uh, and it, it would work with um, data visualization because we were very, very strong in visualization. And then um, as we talked a lot about SaaS metrics, we started saying, oh, let's visualize SaaS metrics, like help companies visualize their funnels, and we sort of did a vertical version of kind of Tableau made for like inside Squared's, Squared mm -hmm. is you know, now. We built that back in 2012 and it was it was very liked. We had three uh, pilot customers that all looked at it and it was like, this is super interesting. And we thought, this is cool. We onboarded their data. And when we looked at their data, it was just noise. Um, and when we looked at that, we were like very surprised because how come all of their CRM data is, is looks like stochastical random noise? And um, when we interviewed their CFO or CEO, or, and these are pretty successful big companies too, they were all saying, oh, we don't trust our CRM data. And we were like, but if you don't trust your CRM data, then like, why would you visualize it? Because it doesn't make sense visualizing just random stuff. And they said, oh, it's because the salespeople don't input anything. 
or very rarely. Mm-hmm. So then, like, this is three months into the project. We were like, okay, so tell these guys we're not going to do this because this is never going to fly. Um, it's going to be too much manual bespoke work on getting this to work and too much data washing. So we said, skip that. Let's make a data input system. So we pivoted, became a data input system, became a mobile app, um, really loved. Like, we had 400 companies downloaded it in the first four launch weeks. Uh, Salesforce Ventures contacted us and was like, uh, or, or Salesforce M&A contacted us and were like asking a lot of curious questions. Um, we got to talk to a lot of interesting people at Salesforce and had a lot of discussions. And uh, at the same time, we found that it's very, very hard to monetize a mobile app, a mobile-only app, because you know the mindset of mobile app is like it's one ninety-nine. Period. Um, so we kind of felt, hmm, we need a system where we got the CFO on board because he or she is willing to pay anything to understand the data. But we want a system where it's going to touch the salespeople to actually get the data. So then suddenly, uh, we just said, ah, let's pivot this to actually uh, kind of blend what we like the two things. Let's build a system which has both parties. So the management says, this is what we want. And then the salespeople uh, like get prompted with things. And they're going to input, input data while they're doing their tasks and chores. And this is you know, one year into the project. And we started demoing this for customers. Um, and because we had you know, 400 companies that had downloaded the app, so we had plenty of email addresses to Salesforce people, mm-hmm. or like people who had a Salesforce. Um, and a lot of people were very excited. And during that year, um, we kind of moved in and found that something that was really interesting was that sales is a very, you know, people want it to be data-driven and very um, predictive process. But at the same time, it's human. It's very, very human. It's like dating. It's like if you script it too heavily, it just becomes horrible. As we all know, with getting emails from Sendbloom and and, um, Outreach, it becomes horrible when you kind of dial up to 11 and make it completely automated. Mm -hmm. So then we're like, let's make something that actually helps the salespeople do decision-making, but it's a sales rep that actually does it. And while they're getting suggestions, like, oh, you haven't called Pollyanne at uh, BBC about that deal, uh, then if they say something, then we're going to put that into the CRM. And we'd started demoing that. And the sales reps were like, wow, this is a better interface than Salesforce is so much easier. And the sales reps were saying, wow, this gathers all this data. And the VP sales were saying, wow, this actually helped my salespeople do close deals. And this is like um, 18 months in. So then we said, OK, let's, let's start onboarding customers. So then we started onboarding people. And very, very uh, like onboarding as in like starting doing uh, early, early sales. And the funny thing about it was that, um, you know, I started the thing because I thought I was curious about modern sales and marketing. What I didn't know was that since I built a sales and marketing process tool, and the first customers we onboard are the people like Evernote and Intercom and uh, Hootsuite and and the likes, I spend spend I mean I spent so much time talking about how they their sales process worked, how their how like how they qualified leads, how they did outbound marketing, inbound, blah 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 blah. So. I, I spent four years, and I feel like a, a crazy dictionary of of sales processes because, like, uh, of course, like, I mean, not not all things, but Hootsuite has one model, uh, Intercom has one model, LinkedIn had another. Um, you know, we talk to everybody, pretty much everybody. Let me can we talk to people like Tesla, and it's like, what on earth? <laughs> How would you use this? Uh, and they were all like, everybody came from the same premise. They were like. We think Salesforce is really clunky and hard to use. We think this could be like a tailored experience. uh, And this would prompt our salespeople to do something. But the nice thing is Salesforce is still a system of record. Uh, So we're like, okay, we obviously have something. Um, So that was kind of the, the, we started this because it was 
we had this huge curiosity to understand sales processes. Um, and what we did is just we jumped both feet in and thought, like the thing is, as my first company, I think that if you take the audacious channel, the challenge of saying, we don't know anything about whatever, mobile user interfaces like TAT, we didn't actually know that much about it when we started. And just said, we're going to be the best company in the world. Like we're going to design Android for Google. Of course, we didn't know that back then because like Google didn't exist when we started the company almost. Um, or like, you know, we're going to deliver 13% of all the world's mobile phones in 2010. Uh, that, you can't say that. But I think what you can do is that you can work as a completely manic person to be and strive and become the best of that field. Because if you do, then everything else will solve itself. And I think what a lot of people do is that when they attack a field, they're looking to, to get a certain MRR number or get a certain company valuation. Um, and I think what we, what, what I have done in my, both my startups and I advise a lot of the companies I invested in is uh, money and valuations are a result of an amazing product. An amazing product is usually um, uh, a result of an extraordinary domain knowledge and user knowledge and, and a great craftsmanship. And I think that's what you need. And we, that's the way I always uh, attack things. Like I want to be the, the thought leader of that subject. So you, you, you named some uh, impressive early customers there, like you know, Intercom and Evernote. Um, and uh, uh, you also sort of raised um, you know, seed funding for, uh, for, for Brisk when I, I'm just assuming that you, potentially that you didn't have to given your, you know, your previous... No. no, exactly. We didn't have to. Um, I think there was a, a couple of different things. Uh, I think one thing is like my original co-founder, so I started the company with uh, the old CTO of TAT, a good friend of mine. And uh, what I didn't know is that we kind of had very different workload ambitions. I think that he wanted, like I'm definitely a workaholic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that he is, but he also um, doesn't feel very well being it. Uh, so I think what happened a couple of months in is that he was he was getting very stressed about workload and spending a lot of cash on this and everything. And we have the same financial situation. So I just felt like, yeah, let's keep investing in this. Let's, building it, let's keep building it. And he was just more and more being worried about, you know, what if they don't sign? What if we have to pivot? And after a while, it just felt obvious that this was actually affecting a lot his operational um, like life of, of planning. And, and he was like looking for shortcuts. And the other part of it was that um, like the, th the, the three things I set out when I was building the company was really, I want to learn modern sales and marketing. I want to learn distributed organizations because we never really named that at my first company. And I want to learn um, raising money. Um, so part of me had this thing that I want to eventually raise money. But um, my co-founder kind of became the forcing function of raising it earlier than later. Um, so we actually raised money um, from Dean Capital and Creandum. Um, Dean Capital being actually really strong in enterprise um, and knowing a lot about it. Uh, they have done a lot of really, really big exits, uh, among others, for, for against Oracle and, and a lot of those big enterprise companies. And Creandum being like the Nordic big uh, kind of um, e-commerce slash uh, like product design, uh, consumer design uh, company. Uh, or VC, so they they it felt like they both kind of going to stand us from two different aspects. So and and do you mind me sort of asking like you know did these guys DN Capital and Creandum invest in uh, in Brisk because obviously they were excited about the idea, but also because of um, you know sadly, your, no. your 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 no. past you know successes. No, no like, sadly, no. It was it was like one hundred percent they invested in us. I mean, we could have uh, and 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 the reason I really know that is that we pivoted during the um, 
during the uh, like due diligence process. Okay. Like they were sitting down saying, like, oh, okay. And we said, oh, by the way, we're not going to be this app. We're going to we're going to skip the mobile app thing. We're going to be a desktop app. And uh, one of the VCs just outright just said, like, why did you have to say that? Hmm. Uh, like, please, that you just made this. Now we can we have to write a new thesis for the LPs, and it's like you could have just like waited and just like pivoted the day after we got to give you the money, or at least told us. Not, I mean, told us the day after. Uh, so for me, it was kind of obvious that it was like, okay, the golden boys are doing something. Give them money; it's going to work out just fine. Okay. Okay. So uh, yeah. So it makes it, and and I, I guess that that does happen a lot, you know. But, um, oh, absolutely. In, yeah. Oh, so, and so, I think that. And I think that it, there is, I mean, there is some truth to it. I think that, uh, I mean, team is one of the hardest things in a startup. But I think mm -hmm. what, there's so many parameters that are hard. I think that, I think if you take all the world's founders and put them a list, like if, and, and look at like the company, value, oh, so Sergey Brin and, and Darry Page and Steve Jobs and uh, whatever. The thing is what most people mistake themselves is they believe the bigger exit they've done, the smarter they are, or like the bigger the company value. What people don't understand is it's, being a great founder is hygiene. It's the thing that makes you not fail. The, the proportion of success has very little to do with your own quality. It has to do with where you happen to, like what banana shell you just stumbled in on and just became something else. I mean, Larry and Sergey are amazing people, but Google is not proportionally amazing in how amazing they are. Uh, they just made sure to not fuck up what was in front of them. And I think that that's the, some, some problem that some of the VCs also do, is that they said, oh, these guys did this humongous exit. They must be super smart. It's like, no. It just means that they have a less risk of failing. It doesn't mean that they're going to succeed necessarily. It just means that the risk of failing is going to be less. But of course, like you can easier do aqua hires with those guys because other people will believe the same thing. So I mean, there are, there are a lot of good things about investing in serial entrepreneurs. So, so tell me um, what went right and what went wrong with Brisk. What really went wrong, I would say, I'm mostly, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big, big uh, proponent of, of self-criticism. Um, I think that what really went wrong uh, was that we never really nailed the product. Um, uh, I would say that we never kind of said exactly the use case. Like we did never narrowed it down enough. Like we should have narrowed the target group much, much tighter. We should have narrowed the use case, the, the problem much, much tighter. Um, there were a lot of times where we uh, end up being flexible on things because we had a too wide target group. It was also because, like you know, um, an Evernote they used us for the account management team, and they were like, "This is amazing. This helps our account management team." And they were just like pouring it into their account management. And very soon after, they said, oh, "Our customer success team wants to use this for like upsells and renewals. This is amazing." And then when we met Hootsuite, Hootsuite was saying like, "Wow, oh, this is great for SDRs and their like lead work." And yeah, sure, we started helping them with that. And in the beginning, we kind of had this understanding that uh, you know it can be deployed all over the sales process. But the problem when you're doing that is that you're ending up with a project which is product which is just subpar. Like if we if we would have just said this is going to be the AE's best friend or like this is the best lead prospecting tool or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. then we could have done something. The problem is in the end we ended up with having um, for every single customer we had sixty percent of the code being pretty much useless for them, and forty percent of the code, of course, was useful. But you know. We could have done more. The customers never complained, but it be, we became, um, for every new customer we onboarded, we felt that we became a slower and slower beast. And there were so many things um, inside uh, the machine um, uh, that just like, it became a burden uh, that we had, not, like in a lot of the discussions where like we ended up saying, okay, should we write this or that on the web page? It was like both. And it's one of those things where 
I hate when people say both or and. It's like, there's one target group, there's one problem. If you say both and, or and, it's wrong. And we kind, of, we kind of worked with this quite a lot. But what then eventually happened before we folded was that I, th I really, really strongly believe that companies don't fold because they run out of funding. Companies fold because they run out of passion. Um, like you don't give up just because you don't have money. Uh, there's always a way to figure out money somehow. Uh, and of course, it's not a nice way, but it's, it works out. What kills you is you just feel it's not worth it anymore. And I think what happened for us is that just so many people, so many things happened at the same time during the same like six to nine month period. And it was like we started feeling that we didn't really care. There were a lot of product choices that we felt like it wasn't that important. And of course, the flexibility in, in the product like added to that. Like there were just too many ways where like if we take if we remove this feature, this customer will be pissed off. If we add this feature, it's going to be slower for that other customer. So that was definitely one irritation. The other part was that I think we started getting really sick of what was going to what was starting to happen in the uh, like fast moving SaaS sales world, like an over automation, uh, which was uh, extreme. Uh, and on the other hand, I think we saw that salespeople didn't change their mindsets. So I think that what, what was so confusing is that I think that we started feeling this world where there was this rift between like the data-driven sales operation and marketing people who really wanted to have tools to measure everything. And then you had the sales team who were kind of this old football team of good guys in a room who were like, you know, tolling the bell when they signed a deal and they celebrated with beer and they were great, like they had great phone voices or whatever. And I think that clash just started to hurt. Like every single customer you onboarded, uh, we have this huge project with LinkedIn in the end. We're just starting to feel this, this like rift in the company, inside our customers, where we just felt like, I don't think you want the same thing. And um, yeah, that, that kind of alienated us a bit from the field. Um, and I think so, so, the, so for, for us, it was really like we ran out of passion. And I I'm not really sure how we could have fixed it when we actually ran out. But one of the things we could have done much earlier is that we should have just said, um, narrow down the problem and narrow down the problem on the one where you're not interested in the solution, but you're interested in the user problem. Like we should have, um, we should have really sort of said this experience that the SDR is having or the whatever who's having, that is a fascinating problem to solve and we'll know everything about it. It kind of became, we became very interested in the overall sales process for our customers. And that was a too big of a goal to solve. And then we became very fascinated with the technical solution of how to do like forecasting and predictions in the product, which was also very interesting, but it was like, it was also too broad. It wasn't like, it wasn't narrowing enough enough. So that was, that went really, really, really wrong. Um, what went right, I think, is that uh, if, if you want to focus on those things, I think what went right is we ended up recruiting really amazing people. Um, being very good at letting people go who were not fitting into the team. And in the end, when we decided to fold, we made sure that every single person who was in the team was included on the decision. And, and kind of, we made sure that it was a collective decision it was not kind of me just standing up and saying, I'm folding this. It was like a very good conversation. We took a, like almost a complete week of debriefing and made sure that everybody landed in different kind of cool companies. And I think that, I think that those people that worked at Brisk, um, they were really stellar. And I'm really, really proud of how much time we spent on uh, both recruitment, but also kind of um, improving and developing those people and how good they actually were during the whole time. And 
you know, everything. That was, that was really fun. Um, and I think that, yeah, that's kind of good and bad. So, so, so you were running out of passion. You came to this. Um, well, you, you, you know, you spent a week with the team discussing about, you know, shall we, you know, close the, the uh, or you know, shut Brist down. Mm-hmm. I mean, when did you know? Was it just when the, the flame had gone, or like the no. collective flame had gone? When did you know? Actually, we've got to do it this week. You know, what was that? Yeah, no, it was. Um, it was actually um, well, the thing that actually triggered it. The thing that really triggered it uh, was that it was Easter, and uh, my co-founder and, and VP Engineering, uh, who's not my original co-founder, uh, like we, uh, he left, and we, and two of the other very early people became kind of co-founders. Um, but um, we had a discussion about one of the MPs who were discussing how to develop. And my VP engineering was saying something, and I said, Origin- or, or, honestly, I don't think we can develop this person. I, I honestly think we should let him go. I think that he's got the wrong attitude. And then uh, I could hear on my co-founder that he was like, oh, it's going to be so complicated and everything. And then we just realized that um, like, we just, it was kind of, we hadn't let, let go of him already because we kind of didn't care. If you see my point, like we were like letting him stay around another another week because he might just figure stuff out. And this is, I mean, he's a great developer, but just wrong attitude on some certain things. And that just made us really panic because we realized how could we have let this guy be here for like three weeks too long because because he obviously has the wrong attitude. And that's when like it's just struck me. It's like we don't really care, do we? Like we don't really care. And we realized this this big customer that we were onboarding, we didn't like we were not crazy passionate about that either. And then, like one, like one question by one, we're just like scrutinizing and realizing like, we have we have plenty of money in the bank, um, but we don't kind of like it's, it. Just feels like it's it, it's not there anymore. And then we just said like let's just do a quick call with the team uh, on Sunday, like in two days, and just talk with everybody and make sure that we're not wrong about this. And when we had the call, everybody was like pretty much chiming in that this is the best group I've ever worked in, but I really don't care about the product anymore and stuff like that. And that just felt like oh my god. Uh, it's so obvious now. And then what happened is that as I used to work in M&A, I know a lot of M&A teams around the planet, so I asked a lot of companies. And what happened, uh, almost so I pinged uh, 12 companies. Um, and what happened almost immediately is that one company just said, we're in, we want to acquire you, uh, we're going to do this. And they uh, they gave us an offer. And then uh, we kind of, you know, I did it, like ran it with the team and the team was super excited about it. At first not, but then super excited after a week of thinking. And then we kind of said, yes, let's do this. Uh, they booked tickets for to meet the founder on like onboarding, and then they pulled out. And as they pulled out, which you know it happens in M and A, it's like it's not nothing strange. Like people change their minds or like strategy decisions or wrong timing or whatever. When they pulled out, um, that's when it just hit hit us. It's like we shouldn't do this. Like we should just we should just like we should hand out the money to the investors. It's like we should sell off the assets. We should just stop beating at a dead horse now. Uh, and that, so that's what we did. Um, so all the employees went left two weeks later, um, except me and my tech co-founder. Everyone else left, like you know, Apple, two YC combinator, Dwight combinator startups, and a couple of super stellar um, startups that that hired them. Everybody is going to land immediately super cool jobs, and then me and my co-founder just started figuring out how we're going to wind down. And then we had a, a company who wants to take over all the tech and integrate it into their product. So we kind of worked with that that taker during the summer, who's now going to take over the product and kind of launch it as their own uh, with with kind of a, a twist there, kind of a, a version of it. Um, so they're kind of acquiring the assets, but it's not going to be the same product or same use case really, and, and it's not going to be called Brisk. And, you, and you're an entrepreneur that's driven by learning. So what were your key learnings from you know the, the four years of, uh, of Brisk? So 
uh, I, I, I actually, I actually uh, like started my blog pretty much uh, as we did this. <laughs> so I started, I, I, I blog now at hajak.se and I've written so many blog posts now about the different things we learned. I've written one about like, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, one about like metrics, one about uh, like how to do customer development, one how to share stuff within the team. There were so many things we learned that I'm so happy we did. Um, and I wrote like one or like three different posts about why we failed. Uh, one of like why we were like how to actually work with making sure you're not too flexible and stuff like that. So I think that at the end of the day, I learned so many different things. Um, and I, I never thought I would. I mean, I, I really never thought I would learn all these things. Um, and I think what's really changed today is that when I built TAT, my first company, I mean, we build it inside the mobile world, which is a very closed world. It's like, you know, it's a big announcement when you can get Apple to leak anything the day before. Whereas in the SaaS world, it's like, you know, everybody knows what Salesforce is doing. It's like, they're, like it's not a big secret. People are kind of open about stuff. Um, so I think what's just so amazing for all these learnings is like in, the, in our world, in the B2B SaaS world, you can just call people and ask them and they have great conversations. You can just, if they're kind of secretive, you can say like, should we go for a drink? And then you can have the conversation. Um, so I think that I learned so many things. And I mean, I've learned so much about the SaaS sales process and uh, like the modern way to build companies. And what I also learned is, um, is that so many startups and SaaS B2B startups get stuck on different thresholds. And there's one threshold, which is that you don't get to charge customers. Like there's one first threshold, which is like you don't, you have like zero MRR or like, like you know, homeopathic MRRs. But then there's another threshold with like you get to 10, 15K. Um, and at 10 to 15K, it's like you've got something, right? Hmm. But you don't have something that's a VC case. And that's where like we were sort of heading. We realized like we're getting closer and closer to this thing and we need to be kind of at 50K. And we can get to 50K, uh, but it's going to take much longer than we expect. And I think that's, that's where, where, I, where I realized that um, it used to be I think like five years ago when, when kind of B2B SaaS was young is that if you had something that kind of you could charge two or $3,000 a month recurring and then you, you know, like you had a five, like a 5K MRR company got funding. Like you could raise a really significant nice round in that because you, you were like, you're a SaaS company, it's going to be cool. Now it's like, if you're not at like 50K, you're a lifestyle business. Um, and that's what, like, that's also why we folded. We realized that we've now reached a point where we can build a lifestyle business unless we add the mass amount of bespoke. Because if we do, like if we do add uh, like professional service and tailoring, we can continue to grow this. But we don't want to do that. Like we don't enjoy that. And the VCs don't enjoy that. Um, so that's where we realized like we couldn't really get to that point. And I think that's another thing I learned is just like when I ask companies today when I meet a startup, I ask them like what's your MRR? What's your average contract value? Um, and uh, and then looking at those, I can then, I know what, what stuff should be like. And then when I just ask them about their company, if stuff aren't like it should be, then it's just like, it's, it's wrong. If they say like, oh, our deals are, you know, uh, our average annual contract value is like, uh, you know, a thousand dollars. Like, okay, who are our customers? Oh, it's Fortune 500s. It's like, okay, that's never gonna work out. There's too few of them. Um, and you're charging too little. Or they're saying, yeah, we have like, you know, MRR, you can't really say an average because they're all over the place. We have some who pay 50, some pay 5,000. We have one now who pays 60,000. It's just like you totally lack focus. 
And there's like all of these questions where it's just from onboarding all of these big clients were so obvious to me to see now in hindsight when I meet a new startup who kind of hasn't reached that machine stage of kind of 50K MRR. Before you reach that stage, a lot of these metrics, you can just look at them. And a lot of people talk about like the quick ratio or whatever. The quick, quick ratio or, or LTV and CAC, that's great if you kind of have a, a very low MRR. Because then you kind of, the, you know, the, 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 you have a lot of things to, you have a lot of customers you can look at. But if you go up to kind of 50, Sorry, if you go up to like $5,000 or, or God forbid, like $50,000 deals, then I mean, you can't calculate a quick ratio. I mean, you're not going to have 100 customers. It's not going to be statistics. You're going to divide three different companies by four different companies. You can't talk about funnel conversion because you've met 50 companies and three of them became customers. So it's, it's not statistically relevant. And I think that's the thing which I think that also we need to figure out how to apply the metrics that come from the consumer world. Uh, which are like LTV and CAC really are, um, to kind of a B2B world where we go up in agreements. Like, how do we actually evaluate a company that signs enterprise deals? How do you forecast a funnel um, if your deal size is, is $50K? Um, when does it become, when does it stop being math and when does it become, become an art? And those are the things I spend so much time on. It's really interesting. So you're sort of, I, I, well, this is, I guess, still on topic, but you're, you, you're speaking at, uh, at SASDOC, um, you know, on the, on the 22nd of September in, in Dublin, and the, the, the topic of the talk is engineering your sales team for hyper growth. Now, I, I've, I've got every confidence um, that you, you're, uh, you know, going to be able to, uh, to, you know, nail that topic. Um, uh, but, you know, given that you've had to shut Brisk down this summer, what will we hear, you know, specifically from you uh, around this that's perhaps different from the other panelists? Mm, I mean, I think the thing, I think, I think that one huge difference, that I'm not going to say anything, I'm not going to, I'm trying not to be negative about the other, another member, another people on the panel because I think they're going to do their best. But I think one huge difference for me is that I'm going to be just candidly honest because I think that they will definitely try but the problem is that they have, uh, you know, they have a company to save and a round they're looking to raise or a PR team that would fry them for saying something wrong. Mm-hmm. Like for me, I can just tell people, like if people want to know something, I just, I can just tell it. It's like, it's no problem. I can just call bullshit on stuff. I can say like, that's, that's not true. It's like, but that there is no, it's not, you don't have those numbers. It's like, you just plural, plural of, of anecdote is not data. I mean, it's, uh, and it's like there are a lot of these things where I think that you know when you read the TechCrunch articles, everybody's killing it. Um, but that's actually one of the really crazy things that happened to me after we decided to fold. We announced we would fold. I got contacted by every single kind of competitor co-op competition in the field. Um, some of them uh, like inquiries about acquisition, but a lot of them just like wanted to know what happened and wanted to like you know ask a lot of questions. And some of those calls were just really scary. I ended up talking to a lot of people who I thought were like, they were killing it and they were nailing it. And just their team page alone looked amazing. And I ended up in calls where like the founders sat in front of me silent for one minute and just ended up saying, we have really no clue what we're doing. Like we looked up to you and we thought that, you know, you really had it. And now when you're saying you don't know what you're doing, it's like, what on earth are we doing? (laughs) And I think that's one of the things I really dislike about, uh, some kind of this like macho culture sometimes the 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 venture capital industry sometimes i think drive us to too it's it's like everybody is killing it and i think it's i think that i find kind of the um you know 
unit economics or product market fit. It's kind of like the sex of high school. Everybody's had, having everybody's having it. It's like everybody's talking about it, but nobody has a clue. And I wish we kind of had a much more honest discussion of saying, like, we think we have product market fit, but we're not sure. We just like, you know, can you come in and just like scrutinize what we're doing and criticize us? And like, can we pitch it to you? And and I think just just two people do, do, do that. I wish that more people just sat down and said, like, let me pitch it to you and just be super honest. Well, that's a, if I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm looking forward to that. And if I was uh, a, a fellow panelist, I'd be slightly nervous sitting next, <laughs> sitting next to you. No, I'm going to be nice. Uh, but, uh, nervous. Yeah, no, you're going to be nice. But uh, no, looking forward to that, um, seeing Hampus at, uh, at SASDOT, one of uh, many speakers there in a couple of weeks in Dublin. But what's, uh, what, what's next for you now, um, you know, Hampus? Uh, um, you know, are you going to do another SaaS startup or, uh, or more investing? I'm going to, I mean, I continue to invest. I, I really enjoy investing. I really ho- enjoy helping uh, startups that I think are, are in interesting domains. Uh, I'm, I've decided I'm not going to start something between now and Christmas. Um, so right now I'm just helping a lot of different startups and, and really enjoying it. Um, it's actually one of the biggest things about not being a founder is that I can just go to bed at night and watch an episode of a TV series and then just fall, fall asleep. And I haven't actually, I realized I haven't done that for like 15 years. Like all of my previous life, it's been that I went to bed, had a notebook, wrote different things, thought about something, picked up my phone, wrote another email to my colleagues, realized that something was strange, checked that up, wrote another thing in the notebook. You know, now it's just like, hey, Mr. Robot is kind of a nice TV series. <laughs> and that's like, let's watch another episode, um, which is, is uh, yeah, it's really nice. But I think what's next is I, I try to blog a lot and I try to help people a lot about the different problems. And I really enjoy doing that. Um, and I think that I'll just see what happens next. Uh, I'm after I'm after the learning, and I'm really enjoying that part. Well, uh, Hampus, uh, I mean, you know, I have to say, it's, well, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you, and you know, really uh, appreciate you giving the insights there, you know, into the the journey at Brisk and why you you know made the decisions to to shut Brisk down. This is something you know very new for us on um, uh, on the SaaS Revolution show, but um, I think we can learn. You know, everybody that's listening learn a lot from uh, from this. So uh, you know, I have to say, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome and for those listening at home if you like this episode of the SaaS Revolution show we'd really appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes and we'll see you next time this podcast is brought to you by SaaS Doc 2016 Europe's premier B2B SaaS conference targeting early to growth stage SaaS founders and a global VC community on the 22nd of September at the RDS in Dublin early birds tickets are available now at www.sasstock.com That's S-A-A-S-T-O-C-K dot com.